Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight we enter Room 106, the vault into which all new planning information is deposited, and extract the key things you need to know. So, coming up, the key news from the past fortnights and what it means for you. Two more councils have announced that they've extended the timetable for production of their local plans. We'll ask what this tells us about the state of plan making across the country. The High Court has ruled that on Greenbelts, a structure does not need to be physically connected to a building to qualify as an extension in planning terms. We'll explain its reasoning. And the accountant who built Britain's biggest man cave has been jailed for refusing to start the building's removal. We'll explain what happened. And in our deep dive section, we'll be examining the latest spate of takeovers of big planning consultancies by multidisciplinary North American firms and asking what is driving them. By the end of the show, you should know enough to survive bumping into a client at the airport. So, time to put on the harnesses. Ready to lure yourself in? Okay. Well, we're back again in room 106. Hmm, this time it is a bit quieter than usual. Still, there's a constant trickle of planning briefings from the Trust and Sunak campaigns. Yes, that's true. So, John, what news stories have stood out in the past fortnight? Well, my first item is actually two stories we've done concerning more local plans being delayed. Firstly, we have a council in Dorset that has pushed its local plan adoption date back by two years. Bournemouth, Christchurch and Pool Council, known as BCP Council, has approved a new formal local plan timetable known as the Local Development Scheme, which states an adoption date of winter 2024, which is two years later than the date in the previous version of its Local Development Scheme. Secondly, the leader of Medway Council in Kent has said the authority will have to start again on its local plan, delaying the adoption date by up to two years after councillors failed to agree on plans for a controversial site that was to be included in the draft document. Okay, so what happened, first of all, in the case of BCP? What what, what reasons has it given for the delay? Um, So Phil Broadhead, the council's conservative deputy leader and the portfolio holder for development, growth and regeneration, told a recent cabinet meeting that the the council had adopted a very engagement-heavy approach, which was in complete contrast to many local authorities. He told the meeting that because that engagement-heavy approach has gone so well, and because we're really committed to do that in the future, it felt right to extend the timeline of the local plan process as well to push it back so that we can continue that cross-party consultative approach. He then told planning that the um, 2019 version of its um, timetable um, was published before the global pandemic and prior to the significant reforms proposed by central government around planning processes and housing allocation figures. So he's saying that the council is keen to do good engagement with its communities, but he's also saying that the um, the COVID and the government's ongoing planning reforms are other key reasons for the delay. And the new timetable means that the council will miss the government's December 2023 deadline for local plan production. Although whether that deadline survives the uh, arrival of the new prime minister, we will see. Yeah. Okay. And what about Medway Council? What, what reasons has it cited for the delay? So the council failed to reach a political consensus on a controversial site that was allocated in the emerging plan. 
that had a claimed capacity for up to 4,000 homes. The council's Conservative leader, Alan Jarrett, told planning that the local plan will be delayed by up to two years as a result. He described the delay as very unfortunate and said it was due to a row, both within the Conservative group and with the opposition Labour group, over the proposed redevelopment of the site, which is in Chatham Docks. The site was incorporated as a potential site allocation in an earlier draft of the plan that was published in October last year, and that was meant to be the final version of the plan before it was submitted for examination. The Council's 2021 local development scheme states that adoption was expected in spring 2023. So again, a two-year delay for Medway would mean pushing it back beyond the government's local plan deadline. Okay, so this is the latest of a number of stories that we've run um, about delays to, to, to local plans. How many local plans have uh, now been withdrawn or delayed in the past 12 months? Neighbouring Dorset, so BCP's neighbouring council, Dorset Council, announced earlier in the month that it would be pushing back uh, the adoption of its local plan, again by two years, to 2026. And in March, planning was aware of 10 local authorities that had paused work on their plans or had withdrawn their plans in the past 12 months. Since then, we've had Dorset, as I've just mentioned, uh, Thanet, Castle Point, Havant, Bassetlaw, Slough, East Hampshire, Wealdon and Epping Forest. And now BCP Council and Medway have been affected, which makes a total of 21 councils. Wow, that really is a, a, a lot. And the, the sort of feels like a, a loss of government authority, I guess, with councils seeming increasingly unconcerned about saying, A, they're not going to stick to the government's deadline of uh, of 2023 and um and b um openly uh, ignoring um or, or some of them are saying they're going to openly ignore the the government standard method of assessing housing need in the expectation that that method is shortly to be changed yes that's right there's a real um vacuum in at the top of government at the moment and it seems like uh, yeah when it comes to um directions from government about local plans that there's been a bit of a, a silence recently and that there certainly is speculation from um, some councils that you know, the new prime minister arriving will mean um, a less stringent approach um, on on your know, councils meeting their local housing need it is quite seriously undermining the planning system which is supposed to be a plan-led system and if councils don't want or are unable to actually produce plans it takes a sort of foundation stone out of the uh, of the system or, or or maybe the foundation stone of the system away yes i think that's a real concern in the sector if you look at reactions to um, the news of all these delays on social media um and not just from the private sector either, that um, the planned system is being undermined both by the, um, you know, the noises being made by the um, the two candidates in the Tory leadership campaign and the the vacuum at the top of government. Yeah, I suppose the, there is an argument out there which is that if you um, make the plan-making process perhaps a little less challenging for councils by 
not requiring them to meet their housing need in full, for instance, although I suspect that's not the way it would be presented, but if you don't require them to meet their housing need in full, you might get um, a, a plan through the system that at least allocates sites and uh, and uh, takes steps to meet 75% of need. But that would be better to get a prompt plan that, that at least planned uh, three quarters of what was needed than, than no plan at all. But um, one wonders whether even planning for that extent of, uh, of development would be politically palatable for, uh, for many councils. Yes, I mean, I guess that depends on the on the area concerned. If it's a, a high growth greenbelt authority, then um, yeah, that that may still be a big challenge. Okay, John. Well, thank you for that. And what about our second story? My second new story is a court case with potentially wide implications in relation to home extensions on greenbelt. A high court judge has ruled that a structure does not need to be physically connected to a building to be viewed as an extension under national planning policy when it comes to um, the kinds of development that are uh, acceptable on Greenbelt. And he, he came to these conclusions in upholding a, an appeal decision to approve plans for a garden home office on Greenbelt land in Warwickshire. Okay. And why is this case significant? The court's ruling provides a clear interpretation of paragraph 149C of the National Planning Policy Framework, And this states that local planning authorities should regard the construction of new buildings as inappropriate in the Greenbelt, but then lists a number of exceptions to this rule. Among these is one in subpart C, which is the extension or alteration of a building, provided that it does not result in disproportionate additions over and above the size of the original building. Okay, so this makes clear that um, those extensions could include buildings that are not physically attached to um, to the existing building. Yes, that's right. So what was the case about? How did this sort of uh, uh, conclusion, uh, what, what, what kind of um, circumstances did it come out of? Well, the case concerns an application by two householders to demolish a disused wooden structure in the garden of their listed cottage in the village of Stoneleigh in Warwickshire. And they wanted to replace it with a new garden room come home office. But the structure concerned was actually 20 metres away from the cottage. So it wasn't physically attached to the main home. So the local planning authority, Warwick District Council, refused to grant planning permission, citing Greenbelt policy. It was overruled by a planning inspector in January this year. The inspector found that what was proposed was actually an extension within the scope of paragraph 149C. She noted that the structure was originally a garage serving the cottage, and could reasonably be considered a normal domestic adjunct, in her words, to the property. The new building would be relatively close to the cottage and would be used for purposes clearly related to its occupation. The council challenged the inspector's ruling and argued that it was not open to her to conclude that a structure which was not physically attached to another building could be an extension of that other building. Okay, and uh, what did the judge say? Ruling on the case, Mr Justice Eyre said that paragraph 149C is to be read in the context of the MPPF as a whole, and more particularly in the light of the purposes of the Greenbelt, to read it as permitting extensions which are physically distinct from the building being extended is not obviously harmful to the Greenbelt or inconsistent with the thrust of paragraph 149, read as a whole. And he went on to say that that there is force in the Secretary of State's argument that a physically separate structure may have less impact on the openness of the Greenbelt 
than a physically attached extension. It sounds like potentially exciting news for people who own standalone garages and other outbuildings in the in the, in the green belt. Um, what are the implications of this? Do you think? Yes, as you say, the ruling means that homeowners in the green belts are now free to build extensions that are not physically connected to the main home without contravening national policy, providing the conditions of paragraph 149C are met. And this could mean converting garages or um, standalone building new standalone structures. Planning lawyer Simon Ricketts says in his blog, that I suspect we shall be seeing an increase in proposals by the owners of large homes in the Greenbelt for the construction of outbuildings, relying full square on this case. And the larger the house, the easier it will be to show that the extension is not a disproportionate addition. And he's referring there to the um, the wording of paragraph 149C. Okay, well, that's very interesting. And your third story? My third item is a long-running enforcement case involving a businessman who constructed what has been described in the national press as Britain's biggest man cave in breach of planning control. And he's just been jailed for six weeks for failing to meet a court deadline to start works to remove the unlawful building. And this has been our most read story of the past fortnight. So what's the background to the case? Well, there's a long and rather complicated planning history here of nearly a decade so the uh, the man concerned, Graham Wildin, has been at odds with his local authority, Forest of Dean District Council, since 2014, when he spent about £1 million building a largely subterranean sports building in the garden of his home in uh, Cinderford, Gloucestershire. And this um, building included a gym, a bowling alley, a casino bar and a children's play area. But Wildin insisted that, that it was permitted development and therefore planning permission was not required. So our listeners will be aware that um, under permitted development, some some extensions, some home extensions do not require planning permission. And the government has relaxed the rules on this almost 10 years ago now. But um, obviously this, this sounds like an absolutely huge uh, extension. And the council disagreed and issued an enforcement notice in 2014 while the, um, the structure was still being built. And that required Wildin to remove all structures, walls and materials from the site and to restore the uh, ground to its natural level. So Wildin then appealed against this enforcement notice, but the planning inspector backed the council. And the inspector described the building design as bland and very poor and said the very large bulky structure was totally out of scale and proportion to the other buildings in the area. The council then obtained an injunction against him in 2018 to back up the enforcement notice and estimated that compliance with it was likely to cost Wildin about £750,000. Why was he jailed? He was given 18 months to meet the terms of the 2018 injunction when that was granted by the courts. After that deadline came and went, the council launched contempt proceedings seeking his committal to prison on the basis that he'd failed to comply with it. Last June, a judge in the High Court imposed a six-week prison sentence on Wildin, suspended for 12 months. And that suspension was conditional on him stripping out the interior of the building, removing all sports equipment, the cinema, bowling alley, and other fittings and furniture, all within 18 weeks. He appealed against this ruling in the Court of Appeal, and he said he couldn't afford to complete the work. But the judge dismissed his case and said he was entirely the author of his own misfortune. 
Lady Justice Lang gave Wilden until 10th of March this year to comply with the order to complete the required work in order to avoid prison. And that March deadline came and went, uh, and early this month he received the six-week prison sentence at Cardiff High Court for contempt of court in failing to meet the terms of the injunction by the uh, March deadline. And so what, how's the council reacted to all this? The deputy leader of the Forest of Dean Council, Paul Hyatt, said after the sentencing that the enforcement case against Mr Wilding has been a long and complex road. In what should have been a completely avoidable situation, Mr Wilding has con- continually ignored planning law and policies that are there to protect local communities. The law is the law and we won't give up pursuing Mr Walden and ensuring that he complies with the legislation in exactly the same way as everyone else. So this is um, one of those planning enforcement cases that has grabbed national media attention due to the extreme lengths that some people will go to to get away with a flagrant defiance of planning rules and also the spectacular nature of the development concerned. It's a bit like the guy in Rygate, Surrey, who over a decade ago tried to build a castle without permission and then hide it behind bales of hay. Um, but in this case, not only does the um, the homeowner have to remove the structure at great personal cost, he's also been sent to prison. Yeah, and it's always quite shocking, isn't it, that that actually can be the um, that can be the outcome. I don't know how widely known it is that that can can be the outcome of um, of uh, 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 you know um, uh, you know a, a sort of contravention of the rules as far as planning is concerned. Clearly, it would have been made plain at um, at, at various stages to. Um, uh, to the individual concerned. Yes, exactly. It's it's the case of someone doggedly sticking to their guns, you know, even though they're, they're clearly in the wrong. But um, hats off to the council for doggedly, for itself, doggedly pursuing this one at a time when government figures show that local authorities appear to be pursuing enforcement action less and less. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, another uh, 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 that's another sort of uh, plank of the planning system, isn't it? The, the enforcement process and... Um, yeah, local with fewer local plans coming forward and um, and, and enforcement dropping it is uh, it's another way in which uh, the system is being weakened. Okay, well, many thanks, John. Uh, and of course, more details of all those stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. Uh, I'll see you later to talk about your quirky story of the week. But now I'm going to have to leave you for a bit to do this week's deep dive. Bye for now. Okay, so now I need to find my way to the mergers and acquisitions section of Room 106. It's generally a pretty quiet corner, but it's been busier with announcements this month from Canadian multidisciplinary firm WSP, which is intending to buy fellow consultants RPS, as well as the planning team at Capita. And uh, and those announcements uh, followed plans announced earlier this year for the American firm Stantec to buy Barton Wilmore. I know planning Samantha Eckford has been looking into this, so hoping I can find her to shed some light on what's going on. Ah, Sam. Hi, Richard. Hi. Good to find you in uh, looking through the uh, rarely visited mergers and acquisitions section of the Room 106 vault. Can you just start off by telling us why WSP might be 
wanting to buy RPS and why it might be wanting to buy the planning teams from Capita. So it seems to be mostly about expanding the firm's scale and their breadth of service. So it's not just about the sheer scale of the firms it's acquiring. It suggested that these acquisitions will give the firm prominence in the UK consultancy market. It's about positioning themselves as one of the leading players in that market. Okay. And how big are the RPS and Capita planning teams? And where would, um, assuming this all goes through, where would this place WSP in the sort of ranking of planning consultancies in this country? RPS reported 87 chartered town planners to our 2021 planning consultancy survey. The last time GL Hearn provided a response was in 2017, when the combined figure for Capita and GL Hearn was 132.8 chartered town planners, which is obviously a pro rata figure. So with these, WSP would be gaining approximately 210 chartered town planners. So in addition to the 93 that it reported itself, this would give the firm a total of 300, more than 300 chartered town planners once the sales are complete. This would actually place them top of our list in uh, last year's consultancy survey. Okay, so uh, assuming this all goes ahead, WSP would be the, the biggest firm by, by some substantial margin. It would be, yeah. Savills was the biggest employer of chartered town planners in the 12 months to September 21 with 197 chartered town planners. So a fairly big gap if they were to maintain all of those planners. Well, that, that, that's interesting. I suppose the only thing that could change that is if there are more acquisitions that, that um, come forward in, in, in coming months. So how important are RPSs and Capita slash GL Hearn's planning functions to this acquisition? So the commentators that I spoke to suggested that WSP took the view a few years back that prominence in the UK planning and environmental market was key to its future. So these acquisitions may help it to secure this. WSP itself said that the firm's strategy is to diversify as a business within the built environment sector and that planning will continue to be an important part of its services be that infrastructure, transport, or town planning. And what do we know about the likely timescale for completion of the deal? So WSP have said that it was expecting the GL Hearn and Capita deal to complete by the end of September, but they haven't provided any detail on the timescale for the more recently announced acquisition of RPS. So what kind of organisational changes can we expect and um, how long before they're likely to begin? So when asked how long it might be before any potential organisational changes come about, the WSP spokesman said that the firm would comment on the specifics once the deal is closed. So for the GL Hearn and Capita deal, this would be potentially the end of September. I spoke to some senior figures in the sector who suggested that one possibility with these kind of takeovers is the loss of some of the talented staff who may leave to set up their own uh, consultancy firms in due course. Okay, okay, that's interesting. So rivals um, uh, uh, not um, missing the opportunity to perhaps um, uh, uh, sow a bit of discord in the in the ranks at, at WSP. But there's certainly been no confirmation at this stage that there will be any redundancies. No, no, not so far. Can we be confident that both sales will go through? It seems highly likely that these sales are to go through. Everyone I spoke to agreed that that was the case. Um the consensus seemed to be that once a sale reaches this point where it's announced, it would be pretty rare for there to be an issue unless the value of the firms was to go significantly beyond what's already been agreed with WSP. What other acquisitions of planning consultancies have we seen in the past 12 months? So the big one was Stantec's acquisition of Barton Wilmore in March. Um, 
There are obviously parallels here. Another large North American multidisciplinary firm buying one of the UK's largest planning consultancies. Then going back a couple more years to July 2019, Tetra Tech, a North American engineering firm, acquired Leeds-based WYG, um, which has since begun trading under the Tetra Tech name. Okay, so what what seems to be driving this spate of acquisitions? So one common factor across many of these acquisitions seems to be the uh, aim to provide a greater scale and breadth of service that's appealing to these multidisciplinary firms. In some cases, there is also the factor that there appears to be a group of people potentially within these employee-owned firms that are reaching retirement age and are wanting to cash in on the value of the business and therefore want to sell the business. Okay, so that, and that's something that um, uh, people you've been speaking to have suggested might have been the case at Barton Wilmore, for instance. Yes. Maybe not a factor with, um, with RPS or, or, or Capita, but um, where there's an employee ownership model, um, uh, these kind of opportunities will come up occasionally. And I, I think I read in uh, what your article about this that you know, people who've been in the sector for a long time say if an offer comes up and it's a, it's a good offer, virtually any employee-owned company becomes a possibility for takeover. Yeah, I think one commentator uh, told me that Employee-owned businesses can never say they'll never sell. Many thanks for that, Sam. And uh, I will uh, leave you in the merger acquisitions section uh, um, and uh, we'll come back and see you if there's any more of these in the uh, in the next few weeks. Look forward to seeing you then. Right, now to find John again so he can select his reader's choice the story that's caught the eye of our readers without necessarily being something that's going to affect most of their working lives. Ah, there he is. Hello, Richard. Hi, John. So what's your quirky story of the week? Well, it's a call by an MP in Parliament to make the planning profession sexy again, to make it more attractive to new entrants. And um, it's had a huge amount of interest from our readers. The Conservative MP for Milton Keynes North, Ben Everett, was um, speaking in the House of Commons where he warned that the brain drain in the planning sector will impede the government's levelling up mission. He said it was abundantly clear that the planning system requires radical reform and then added, while not a technical term in the world of planning, we need to make the planning profession sexy again. Bringing the planning system into the 21st century should be a priority in any successful levelling up agenda. And the enormous amount of interest that we've seen in the story, is that just a reflection of the fact that it's got the word sexy in the headline? Um, is it is it just uh, uh, you know a, a, a signal to the, the planning team that we should get more sort of clickbait into our, um, into our headlines? Or is there, um, is there more to it than that? Well, I think there's a degree of clickbait there. It is, you know, it is unusual to hear an MP of all people use language like this in Parliament, um, juxtaposing sexy and planning. But he is making a there is a serious point there. So the point he's making is that the planning profession needs to be more attractive to young people and graduates, which I think most people in the sector would would. Um, yeah, we very much agree with, um, and yeah, something the RTPI have been, you know, it is certainly on their radar with their um, the new planning apprenticeship. Yeah, yeah, and um, 
I mean, I suspect some people will um, uh, will smile wryly at his use of the word um, again in terms of saying making the planning profession sexy again, and and some might question whether it ever was uh, sexy. But um, uh, I mean, what, what do you think about that? Yes, it's not exactly clear what he means by again. I think he's harking back to a time when local authority planning teams were much better resourced and there was a lot more graduates entering the profession and he could be referring to the kind of heyday of town planning in the 1960s and 1970s when new towns like Milton Keynes were being built and um, uh, you know planners wielded lots of powers yeah i think i think to be to be fair to him i think he's he probably has got a point there hasn't he that there was a certainly there was a time when uh, 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 one's perception is that in the in the uh, you know sixties and seventies there was a time where there was very clearly a great deal of um, of power and resource behind uh, uh, behind planning teams. You know, whether he um, w- would would like to see planners empowered to quite that extent again to 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 use the the system to drive development uh, is an interesting question because again coming back to the conversation we had earlier about many councils seeming reluctance to actually plan and and make decisions about the future of their of their communities um uh, that that obviously raises some um, questions about uh how much the des- political desire there is around to uh, to, to plan but um it, it is only when um when people see that planners can achieve things and will get political backing to do so that the um that the profession will uh, sort of increase in status yes that's a good point i, I think it links this idea of, of the, the profession being better respected previously but um obviously there's been sort of one of the reasons why it perhaps is not as well respected as you could argue is partly due to comments from certain members of the um, the government in the past decade okay well thank you very much john I think our work is done. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great, that's another fortnight summarised. Yes, we'll be back in two weeks to give you another update on the key things happening in the sector. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe or wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producers Aidan Lyons and Daisy Chaku from Rethink, and thanks for listening. Goodbye.